Welcome to the Ben Cotton Podcast. This is episode 33. We're talking about reconciliation. What is it exactly? It may sound simple to you, it may sound obvious, but it's actually not. I find that many people, if not most people, have never actually thought about it. They want it. They want reconciliation as an individual. They want to see reconciliation between groups in our nation and perhaps even between families, but they don't quite understand what it is and what's required to make it happen. And this is actually hugely important for joy and peace in our life because so much of our joy really is tied to our sense of community. And we want to have to rebuild and fix and repair relationships, but we don't know how. We don't know what's required to make that happen. And so this is a hugely important issue individually, but also as a society. And so we're going to think through that quickly. I'm going to give you some sort of foundational principles that you can apply to your life, and uh, I think it'll be helpful to you. So let's get into it. Okay, so what is reconciliation? Uh, The first thing we need to think about and realize is that reconciliation is not just a ceasefire, okay? It's not just, it's like two people that are fighting that just stop fighting. That's now that's a move in the right direction. And that's in some ways, that's a, that's a very positive uh, result that maybe some people are satisfied with. And in certain certain situations, maybe that's the most you can hope for, excuse me, but reconciliation is more than just not fighting. It's more than just a ceasefire. It's not just two parties laying down their weapons and calling a truce. Reconciliation calls for an ongoing relationship, okay? Um, it's an ongoing relationship that's no longer burdened by the, the brokenness or the, the, the break in relationship that happened before. Reconciliation speaks of hope for the future. This is two people that have that fell apart, one hurt the other, their relationship was broken, it's been repaired, and they've moved forward together in relationship. That is reconciliation. So I have three kids, and they've often been at each other's throats, as I'm sure many of you parents uh, can can relate to. Um, and it's it, you know over one thing or another. Maybe they one of them says something mean to the other, or they didn't want to share a toy or whatever it is. Um, and what we would always do as parents, you know, you've all been there. Uh, you stop them from fighting. You separate them. You you make them talk it out. You make them apologize and hug, and then, um, and then you you feel like your job is done. That's not reconciliation. That's a ceasefire. Reconciliation is what happens like an hour later, hopefully, when the kids are playing together in the other room. And they're no longer even thinking about what happened before. That's the point at which they've been reconciled. And that's what we're hoping for um, in our relationships. So as I see it, biblically speaking, I think there are three basic requirements for reconciliation. All three of these have to happen in order for reconciliation to happen. Okay, One is repentance. Two is Justice and three, forgiveness. So repentance, 
justice, and forgiveness. And I'm going to explain all three very quickly. One, repentance. This is a crash course in repentance. Repentance is a huge top biblical topic, but I'll give you the quick definition. Repentance is not just saying you're sorry, like when our kids are fighting, we make them say they're sorry. It's actually being sorry, right? Which is much more difficult. That's a hard issue, not just the words you say or giving a hug or saying the words, I'm sorry. It's regret. It's recognizing your sin against the other person um, that it's now a debt, a kind of moral debt that you owe to that person because of what you did to them. It's that sense of like pain that you have where you feel and sense and even embrace the pain you cause someone else and really look at it and own it. Okay. You are embracing that pain that you caused as best as you can, taking full ownership of that mistake. Okay. That's when you repent to someone else for what you did to them, that's what we're talking about. So it's far bigger than just saying, I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's a heart issue of regret and embracing that debt that you've caused between your. Secondly, have forgiveness. Forgiveness is another enormous topic that probably I should do another podcast on which I might do. Um, it's a huge topic. This is very important in the new Testament. Um, this is where forgiveness comes into play is that you have this debt that has been um, caused or created by this mistreatment from one person to another. And now the, the, the person who did the mistreating owes a debt to the person they mistreated and a, a moral debt. Okay. The problem is that that debt can't really be paid, okay? It almost doesn't even matter how small the offense is. The person that has been done wrong must forgive that moral debt in order for the reconciliation to happen, okay? This is not, and we need to be clear here, most people misunderstand what forgiveness means. This does not mean you are lessening the offense. You're not saying, hey, no big deal. Right? You're not saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you did to me. It wasn't that bad, or you didn't really mean it, or it didn't really hurt me that bad. That's like fake playground forgiveness, um, where one person pretends like it wasn't that bad or pretends like they didn't get that hurt by it. And that that's not forgiveness. That's just denial. Okay. That is a that's why sometimes we have to forgive people multiple times. It's because the, as we go along, we as time goes by after the offense happens, we start to re- re- realize the real repercussions of what they did to us, and we have to forgive them again because we have finally become honest about what they did and what it meant. Okay, forgiveness is so it's not lessening the fen- the offense; it's not diminishing its impact. On the victim, forgiveness is simply giving up the right to have that debt repaid. In order to acknowledge that the debt does not have to be repaid, you have to acknowledge that there's a debt. You have to actually, in order to forgive somebody, you have to actually really face what they did to you and what it means to you, how it's impacted your life. So one example might be um, a marriage where the, maybe the man in the in the marriage cheats on his wife and leaves her. The initial impact of that on the wife is just going to feel like you cheated on me, you betrayed me, that hurts, right? So she forgives him for that. But then 
then maybe there's a divorce that happens because of that betrayal and that abandonment. And now she's having to forgive her husband again because of that repercussion. And then maybe she gets remarried years later. She finds that she's having a hard time trusting her new husband because of the betrayal of her former husband. And now she's got to forgive her former husband again for that. This is why these things can take a lot of time. So it does you no good to try to diminish the impact of what someone did to you and call that forgiveness. Cause that's not what it is. Forgiveness looks at the full impact of the sin against us, looks at it full in the face and forgives anyway and says, I'm not going to hold on to my right to justice. I'm not going to hold on to the, I'm not going to demand that this person pay that debt back to me. I'm going to let it go. That's forgiveness. And what's hard about this for many people, especially if you've been really hurt, so, so, you know, we're not talking about just an insult. Somebody like really abandoned, like in the example I gave about the husband who cheats on his wife and abandons her. That's serious pain. And lots of people have experienced that serious pain. God actually commands us to forgive. There's several places, two of the probably the most important, I think, for you, if you're struggling with this idea of forgiveness, to look at. I'm not going to look at them right now. Is Matthew 18, 21 through 35. That's the parable of the unforgiving servant. That's in Matthew 18, verse 21 through 35. That's really clear. Basically, it says that because God forgave us the massive sin debt that we owed to him, God forgave us, therefore we must forgive those who sin against us. There's a, there's a divine justice in God's command to us to forgive. Okay, it's really... Um, it's really obvious when you read that story. I encourage you to do it. But also, Jesus himself says very plainly in Luke 17, verses 3 through 4, he says that forgiveness is not dependent on repentance. Okay? We, we're not talking about... You can forgive someone and not be reconciled to them. Okay? Forgiveness simply is letting go of that, of your right to have the debt paid. So what forgiveness does is not dependent. God says you must forgive even if the person doesn't repent. Forgiveness is not dependent on repentance. It is dependent on the mercy of God to us. The mercy of God has been merciful to us. Therefore, we must forgive. We have been forgiven much. Therefore, we must forgive others. It's also, those verses also make it plain that if someone sins against you, he or she should be rebuked by you or anyone else. And that they should in turn repent. Okay? So there's this interplay that's supposed to happen between repentance, the one who repents, who does the wrong and repents for it, and the one who is the victim and forgives. And the victim is allowed to rebuke the victimizer, but they still have to forgive whether that person repents or not. That is a hard thing. What makes that easier is to know that God is to be to live in the gospel, to live in that awareness that you have also been forgiven and the debt that you owe to God because he is infinitely pure and holy is far greater than any debt anyone would owe you. Okay. So if you're struggling with that, go check out that story in Matthew 18. That will help you a lot. Also, Luke 17 is also uh, hugely important. So that's repentance and forgiveness. There's another thing that's required for reconciliation. Okay. Remember, that future relationship, that hope for future relationship 
is in his reconciliation. And that's justice. Okay, so the mistreatment that is being repented of by the by the person who's 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 hurting you, that must stop. Okay, in order for there to be reconciliation. Um it also kind of shows that the repentance itself was not really real, was incomplete. But also that mistreatment may have created some need for some kind of action to demonstrate that repentance. Okay. So maybe someone stole some money from someone else and they repent. Well, there might be, there's, I think, and that's a clear case where they need to pay back the money as a demonstration of their repentance to that person. That's a good and right thing to do, but still there's a, there's a moral debt that's owed there that can't be repaid. And so the person needs to forgive them that was stolen from. And that person needs to forgive them even if that person never repents and continues to steal from them. That's Luke 17. It's very, you just can, you've got somebody who's stealing from you all the time. You have to forgive them every single time, whether they repent or not. It doesn't mean you have to let them steal from you. It means that if they steal from you, you got to forgive them. So these are difficult things to do. Simple ideas, difficult to execute. So let me give you a kind of simplistic example because we'll, and this will help you think it through in your own life and apply it, and then we'll kind of extrapolate from that. So let's say, hypothetically, I have a friend, and every time I see this friend, I walk up to him and I slap him in the face as hard as, like, hard as I can. Just smack him across the face every single time. Now, if I refuse to repent, there can be no reconciliation. He can forgive me, right? He's commanded to by God to forgive me, but we're not reconciled. I've still not repented. I've slapped him in the face multiple times, and we're not reconciled, but he has forgiven me, okay? If I refuse to repent, there's no reconciliation, right? If I repent, let's say I slap him, I realize what I've done, and I say, oh, I'm so sorry, and I, and I say, oh, this is awful, but I continue to slap him every time I see him. One, my repentance is questionable, right? But also, there's no reconciliation. I'm still slapping him. So that's where this justice thing comes in. You got to stop the slapping before there can be reconciliation. Thirdly, or fourthly, I think it is, if I repent and I stop slapping him, but he refuses to forgive me, there's still no reconciliation. All three of those items must be in place for reconciliation to happen. Repentance, justice, and forgiveness, all three. If you're missing just one, there's no reconciliation. You still be in obedience to God because maybe you've forgiven and that person is still slapping you. Or maybe that person has repented, but they continue to slap you, Right. Now, again, that's a simplistic example, but I think you can see how you can apply that simplistic example to all sorts of areas of real life where you're in a relationship with someone, a friendship, a marriage, uh, whatever it is. Um, those three things, it doesn't mean you have to stay in, a re- in, in that relationship and continue to get hurt by that person. Does that mean that you can rebuke them? You can say, hey, you're sinning against me and I'm not going to let you do that anymore. You're still not reconciled. You just escaped a bad situation. 
What about group reconciliation? This one's way harder. This is way more complicated. There's no way I'm going to solve it. But simply put, so one of the things right now everyone's talking about is racial reconciliation. How do we get two giant groups of people to reconcile with each other? I think the simplest answer is that most of the, the majority of the individuals in each group have to reconcile individually with each other. And once you read, there's, once you reach a kind of threshold of reconcil- individual reconciliation, then you can say these groups are reconciled. Two groups of friends in the high school, right? When most of the friends from one group reconcile with most of the friends in the other group, the, the non-reconciled members who are still holding on to their anger, refusing to forgive or refusing to repent, then those people either fall in with the rest of the group and forgive and repent, or they exit the group. Okay. It's essentially what happens in group reconciliation. And so the goal is still has to come down to individuals reconciling with each other. And this is how we see marriages repaired. This is how we see friendships repaired. This is how we see different political parties reconcile with each other. It gets more and more difficult as the groups get larger and larger. So I also want to kind of bring into all of this another wrinkle, which is a beautiful yet complicating factor, and then I'll close. And that is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. I call this a, a kingdom wrinkle in this issue of reconciliation. Here's what it says. It's a little long, but I think I need, I'm going to read the whole thing because it's super important to help you think through these issues as a Christian. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is a profound expression of the gospel from Paul in a very short sentence, that Jesus died for all who would believe in him, and because of all who believe in him, they have also died because Jesus died. They are in Christ. It's that mysterious Pauline idea of being in Christ, that where Jesus goes, I go. When he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. When he was reconciled, I was reconciled. Look at the next part. He says, verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There it is, reconciled, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amazing. So what Jesus, so what Paul says that Jesus did for us is what in his death and resurrection, he unified himself with us in such a way that the that our reconciliation to God also means we have been reconciled to each other. In Christ. So everybody who is in Christ, everybody who is a Christian, everyone who is a believer, the entire church, the body of Christ, not just your local church, but the whole church around the world has been reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to each other. He remade us as a new creation. That's astounding, right? So Jesus stood in for the wrongdoers. He stood in for the victims and reconciled them together by making them into a new people. They are no longer in the category of wrongdoer and victim. They are in him. They are a new creation. So the need for justice is also satisfied. This new people has this new spiritual DNA that, that, that no longer owes a moral debt to God or to each other because Jesus paid the debt. The problem is that the church historically has not always done a great job. That's I'm being facetious. It's done a bad job quite often of acting like this is true. We have too often chosen to live as unreconciled people instead of reconciled people, which is an act of rebellion against the gospel that made us new, a new creation to begin with. I think we need, to remember, we need to remember, though, that this is not always going to be true. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, all sin, the sin that divides us, is going to be done away with. All injustice is going to be made right. A new heaven, a new earth will be made where there is no division, there is no injustice, there is no need to repent or any need to forgive because there is no more sin to make it happen. And in the meantime, as we grow into Christian maturity, we will see the reality of our reconcilia- reconciliation with God and with each other become expressed in our daily life and the way that we relate to each other. And so this is the process of us growing up in Christ and becoming mature Christians. Is that reconciliation that God has already declared about us becomes a reality in the way that we live and we start to act like ourselves. We act like what he says we are. I also want to point out, as in closing, is that we shouldn't forget the amazing truth, okay, that if you look at the church, not just your local church, my local church, my small local collection of people, you look at the, the global church around the world, it is the most diverse collection of humans of all time, okay? It's the... 
every tribe, nation, and tongue. We are not, you know, there are some people groups that have not heard the gospel yet, but we are closing that gap very quickly through the sacrifice of some amazing frontline missionaries. But the church, from God's heavenly, eternal perspective, is the most, the only completely diverse movement of humans on the planet that has ever existed. That's amazing. That does not, it doesn't mean that we don't have work to do in our local churches. It doesn't mean that we, in, our, in my church, that we shouldn't strive to, to, to reflect the multiculturalism of the community around us, that the, all the people groups represented in my community should be in my church, and I should pray and act and do everything I can for it to look like that. But our desire for multicultural expressions lot are logically driven by the fact that we are all have already been reconciled in Christ. That the church is a diverse movement, and that is what God has made us into, and he is going to continue to make us into that. And I just want my local church to be a part of it. That's different than trying to manufacture something out of thin air. So any attempt to have reconciliation that does not include repentance, justice, and forgiveness, all three will fail. And the church, the body of Christ, has the tools that are necessary to make that almost impossible dream come true. I'm not sure group reconciliation can even happen without a movement of the gospel where the church comes in and that reconciliation that Jesus won at the cross and in his resurrection is expressed because it requires a miracle. All those people on every side of the aisle coming together and being reconciled to each other, that task requires Jesus at the center of it. So that's my prayer. That's my prayer for my local church. It's my prayer for the church in the United States is that we learn what individual reconciliation looks like so that we can then apply that to how we live as groups of people relating to each other. I hope that helps you think through these things. I'm happy to discuss them more in the comments or by email. That'd be a wonderful thing. I would enjoy that discussion if you're interested in it. I hope you're doing great, and we'll see you next time.